Hello, and welcome to the In Publishing podcast. My name is James Every, and I'm the editor of In Publishing. My guest this time is Rory Brown, co-founder and CEO of AgriBriefing, a price reporting, analytics, consulting, market data, and intelligence company for the agri-food and commodity industry. Rory has worked in the B2B media sector since the early 90s. We talk about his strategy and plans for AgriBriefing, and look at some of the challenges and opportunities facing the wider B2B sector. Amongst many things, Rory talks about the importance of becoming an integral part of the industry you serve. We are not just an information, a third-party information service providing uh, news and commentary. We are actually part of the infrastructure of the way in which that industry trades, purchases and sells. And that's a, that's a very, very powerful place to be. Why being one step ahead of your customers is a good place to be. Understanding how our customers are evolving, we would like to be slightly ahead of our customers uh, in terms of offering them services which they maybe didn't fully appreciate they needed, but when they use them, they see the value. And about always looking outwards and being open to new ideas. The advice I would give to anyone in, in B2B media or most industries is just be a magpie, go up, go off and collect ideas, be inquisitive and understand how some of those new business models are evolving. Network with the young up and coming um, enterprises, some of the people trying new models. And you never know, there might be something that you can apply back to your much more traditional uh, business and concentrate on. Before we hear more from Rory, a quick word about our valued sponsors. We would like to thank our podcast sponsor, Air Business, a market leader in distribution and subscription management services for the publishing industry. Its end-to-end service includes subscriber acquisition and marketing strategy, worldwide distribution, digital mail and e-commerce fulfillment, and warehouse and freight logistics. For more information, visit airbusiness.com. Rory Brown, welcome to the Unpublishing Podcast. Thank you, James. Nice to speak to you. Now, I believe you've been travelling and you just got back from the Feed Info Summit in Geneva. What was it like being back face to face? Okay, I have to confess that I wasn't actually there. Oh, I, misread, um, I misread your tweet in that case. <laughs> we have, we have re. I, I tried to uh, publicise what we're doing as a team, so we had a clashing board meeting for that one. But we are back into physical events for the first time in a long while, and have now run three uh, in Vegas, in Geneva, and in Chicago over the last last few weeks, and it has been fabulous to be back. And presumably you've been doing that kind of thing virtually. How do the two compare? Yeah, we did do some virtual events. Um, We tend to, events is not our key business model. So they are associated with our subscription brands. And we try and build the sort of leading meeting place for our industry on an annual basis. Um, Virtual events work up to a point. I think there are some things which work very efficiently and some things which you you really miss and lots of people have talked about the difficulty of networking online the difficulty of keeping people engaged online when they can be distracted by a whole load of other things so it definitely has its place but I think we're now working out how the whole sort of hybrid in-person experience will evolve uh, as we're allowed to get back to physical events. Now, you started AgriBriefing in 2010 with the, the purchase of Farmers Guardian. Um, but in August this year, you sold the title along with the rest of your UK agriculture division. What was the thinking behind that? So, as in most journeys in life and most corporate entrepreneurial journeys, a lot of stuff happens by accident, really. Um, so, uh, I formed the company after being made redundant from incisive media in 2008 in the banking crisis. And really with a starting point of thinking uh, there were ways of creating value in business media that were being neglected. And that was largely by a concentration on platforms. So uh, we had an opportunity to buy some assets from UBM, who I suppose it's fair to say were changing their business model to be platform-centric and in uh, really concentrating on on becoming an 
exhibitions company, um, I've always had the belief that media, good media brands is user centric. So it doesn't matter how you make your money from those customers, um, but you you really need the engagement of uh, uh, of an audience and then finding out the ways in which you can help them do their job better. And that might be many and varied. That might be events, that might be publishing, that might be data, whatever it is. So I suppose we've had a an underlying belief in how value is created in media, a DNA, if you like, for the company. Uh, and when we first bought Farmers Guardian, it was great. It was a ticket into a fabulous industry sector uh, that happened to make its money largely at the time through newsstand sales and advertising. Um, so our journey as a company from that origin has been increasingly to get deeper and deeper into the agricultural sector to understand that different revenue streams have different values. Uh, and my background is really in user revenues primarily, finding out how we can sell information and how we can make money from, from users. So the evolution of the company has been from very traditional B2B media uh, into much higher end data subscriptions, SaaS type services. Uh, and as a result, during the last 10 years, we have evolved significantly to the state where we um, where we ended up selling the original baby uh, and the business has, has morphed into a data business. And was that a difficult decision? Because I, I think there was quite an emotional attachment. I've heard you speak eloquently about the value of the and your feelings towards the magazine. Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, it, it, you, you put a lot of emotional capital and intellectual capital into the uh, the brands that you work in. And I've been lucky to work on some, some, some great brands during my career. Um, it's ultimately, it's the people, the relationships, the customers that you get involved with. It doesn't really matter uh, what sector it is in. But when you when you have to say goodbye to one of those sectors, you know it's the right thing to do for the business, but it doesn't make it any easier to uh, to sort of move on from those those areas. And I suppose part of my job is to find the right home for those businesses. We are we only ever think of ourselves as temporary custodians of the brands that we work with. Farmers Guardian, for example, have been published for. 175 years and my grandparents were readers of it so it, it we will I think our job is to leave those brands in a better state than we found them uh, and I'm very proud of the job that we did but it is a bittersweet day when you say goodbye to something that has been a big part of your life for that period and has helped us found the company that we have now. And can you give us a thumbnail sketch of the the new marketplaces you now operate in? Yeah, so we are 100% concentrated on the agri-food vertical, which means the uh, commodities that are produced in agriculture all the way through to the food and restaurant chains uh, that, that use those commodities. Broadly, we work in four main sectors. So proteins, uh, be they animal proteins or increasingly plant-based proteins, uh, the grains and oilseed sector, uh, so wheat, malting barley, or, uh, sunflower oil, all of those areas. Uh, the biofuel sector, because increasingly agriculture is also linked very closely to energy markets uh, and very tied to those energy markets. And then the animal feed sector. So those are the, those are the end user communities that we work with. And across those industries, we deal with the major producers, the big trading houses, the financial institutions that cover them, all the way through to the restaurant chains and retailers who uh, then either manufacture from those products or sell them on to the, the consumers. And I suppose the, the big change that we've got now in our business is that we are an 80% plus subscription business. So have high levels of annual recurring revenues uh, and have left uh, left behind some of the days where we were blown by the advertising markets or the marketing services markets. We're, we have a lot more predictable business now. 
And are they typically corporate licenses or individual users? Yeah, I, our model is is very similar to a, a sort of SaaS business. So we are selling uh, subscription, digital subscriptions into enterprises, uh, and increasingly those subscriptions are sold on a per seat basis, or more so now on to into direct data feeds into customer systems that that help with tasks. So I think the days of providing someone with an online password and then leaving them to it and saying, our job is done, we've sold you that subscription. Those those days are, are rapidly disappearing and it's now understanding how we feed information into something that the customer does. So what do they do before and after using our information and how can we help integrate that into their process? And has the, the move towards corporate licenses, has that changed the way you... you or the composition of your sales teams and the, and the way they operate and the way you recruit for that? It's a lot more sophisticated. Um, our commercial people who I'm extremely proud of in the, in the company are the type of people who can go in with a straight face and with the intelligence to negotiate many hundreds of thousands of pound deals with customers uh, really get to understand customer pain points and how we can we can help fix them, and that's a, that takes a certain level of uh, of salesperson, which is less transactional and, and much more consultative in terms of um, working with customers to really understand where value is driven from uh, and make sure that we we get our share of that value because ultimately our job is to help our customers do their job more efficiently. Uh, They work in very complex markets, hugely valuable markets. Uh, And if we can make a difference to their business, we we should uh, derive some value from that. But it's not just a a standard rate card where I go in and say, well, that'll be $29.99, here you go, and then I move on to the next one. So it it is a very different skill base. And how typically is your data or the data you you feed into companies? How is that used? Well, that's the interesting thing, and I think that's the that's one of the big lessons for um, media owners uh, and especially data publishers is you have to understand how what happens on the other side of the transaction. So we are not just selling them information, but we are understanding whether I don't know, a particular pricing feed, for example, uh, is ingested into some form of risk management decision of a company uh, where it shows their exposure to certain commodity markets uh, in terms of their their ingredient chain, for example, or into an ERP or planning system or into some form of strategic dashboard for their management uh, and we need to understand that, and it varies from customer to customer, uh, and therefore we need to we need to really go in and, yeah, I mean, old old school, but spend a day in the life of your customer, see what they do immediately before they use your product, immediately after they use your product, and understand the role that what you do uh, plays in some form of decision for them. And that's that's a that's a very a, a big challenge, but that's that's where the gold lies. Well, my next question, you probably partly answered it already, but what are the secrets of success in the commodities reporting market? Um, specifically in the commodities reporting market, the real the real essence that you have to have is trust of the market. So, uh, if I take an example of the animal nutrition market that we cover where we provide pricing benchmarks for amino acids, enzymes and vitamins that go into animal feed. That is a 20 plus billion dollar traded market. And there are some very, very big, very grown up companies within that space. But largely it's a it's an opaque market or it was a, a very opaque market. People don't know what the underlying price is of some of those commodities. There's no central exchange that tells you what the price is today compared to yesterday or the futures market. These are relationship-built markets where buyers and sellers and traders interact 
and negotiate either on a, a spot market basis or a longer term contract basis. So our job within that space is to shed light on what is going on in that marketplace. And we do that with very experienced market reporters who go out and assess what is happening in the supply and demand balances for those markets. But we can only do that because the industry trusts us and trusts our independence. Uh, And that has been built up over decades uh, as the industry has evolved, we've 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 followed that industry uh, and built the trust and understanding from from the market. So the the fundamental thing is that I could publish a price tomorrow as Rory Browning, and everyone would go, well, they would just ignore that because who are you? Where's your history? Where are your relationships? How do I know I can trust you? Are you independent from the market, et cetera, et cetera? So the trust is the fundamental thing that you have to have. Um, and then in terms of success, you have to stay close to your customers. I mean, it's it's no different from any, any other business market. You have to uh, do all of the things that you do better and better. Your commercial engine has to work. Your technology has to work. Your engagement has to work. Uh, your customer success engines have to work. Uh, And ultimately, in any subscription business, you really only make your money off your renewal book. Um, So the the proof of the pudding is, do your customers come back in year after year and really value what you're providing? Uh, And if they do, you will be successful. But you you have to get there first. And that's sometimes a long road to get to that point of trust and building up enough of a customer base that you can then start really investing back in the product uh, and developing further services. And I was just wondering, Rory, you know, because obviously in terms of commodity pricing, the, the recent gas um, industry issues we've been having, well, what's your take on that from, from a commodity pricing and reporting perspective? Well, I mean, the market is the market. Uh, there are lots of things that move it. Uh, some of those are normal supply and demand factors, but often regulatory changes might work or political tariff wars might have might have a significant effect or shipping and container markets might be tight and really hard to get truckers and containers to move product from one place to another. So I'm by no means an expert in the uh, in the gas and energy markets. That's not one that we really cover. But The same would apply in any commodity that there are so many external factors that move it. So in agriculture, for example, obviously climate change, droughts, floods, uh, poor planting seasons will significantly move move markets. uh, And that a lot of those things are out of your control. Um, And that's why there's so much volatility in these markets. And for a price reporting business or someone who is providing transparency, that is great for us. The only thing that kills a price reporting business is if the market is exactly the same yesterday as it was uh, as it was today and it will be tomorrow, because then no one needs the intelligence. So volatility is our friend. Whether markets are moving up or down, people need to know what's happening. Uh, and price reporting businesses give you that uh, that transparency and a little bit of a heads up about way things might be going in the future. Now, I understand that you increasingly see yourself as part of the, the agri-food and commodity industry rather than being a media company reporting on it. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so this goes back a little bit to what I was saying before that about the integration of what we do with our customers. So if you think about... But think about the protein markets, for example, that we cover extensively, uh, largely in the US through our Erna Barry division. Um, When McDonald's buys their hamburger meat or KFC buys their chicken wings or whatever it is, uh, they need that's a very significant part of their spend and their outlay and procurement functions. If they don't know what the underlying price is or haven't got a heads up that there might be a cheaper source from somewhere else or a better quality source from somewhere else or that the 
exchange rates are moving so it makes it more efficient to buy that from Australia rather than from Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. That company is not working efficiently. And the, the, the sort of holy grail for us is that these companies start to outsource that market intelligence business to specialists like AgriBriefing and Erna Barry. And so when they agree a contract to buy some product, they will do that on the basis of our benchmarks and our prices. And so we get written into contracts. And when you do that, it is very hard to then sort of disentangle yourself from uh, those suppliers because you have that trust, you have that authority in that market. uh, And both sides of the supply chain trust that information and it's embedded into some form of workflow that happens independent of you, but using your data. Uh, In those cases, we really are part of the way the industry operates. We are not just an information, a third party information service providing uh, news and commentary. We are actually part of the infrastructure of the way in which that industry trades, purchases and sells. And that's a that's a very, very powerful place to be. And I think that's the that's the direction that we try and spend time on is on understanding how we increasingly embed ourselves within those industries uh, and become the real must-have information service that if we went away, something would stop. Uh, And I think that's often a very good way of thinking about the value you create. Would someone miss you if your service was down for an hour? Um, And if you think about other other information and data markets, I mean, say, for example, a stock market trader could trade the markets on 15 minute delayed information from which you can get from free uh, from all sorts of places about um, stock exchange prices. But they would be at a very, very significant disadvantage. So they need that real time data. They need that real time intelligence. They need pricing information because otherwise they will be at a very large competitive disadvantage to their peers. Uh, And so that's where we see ourselves increasingly embedded in the markets that we serve. And would you say B2B publishers as a whole or in general should be positioning themselves similarly? Well, I mean, it's easier said than done, isn't it, James? I mean, there's... Uh, yes, in principle, uh, in any market that you work in, certainly any business market, any vertical, there are opportunities to provide must-have data, whether that's pricing benchmarks or forecasts or technical information or whatever it is. I'm sure there are, in, in whether you're looking at battery technology, semiconductors, oil and gas, uh, legal professions, whatever it is, there will be a there will be an opportunity to provide some must-have data, but it's very hard to get to, and it's very hard. It takes a long time, a whole load of research, a lot of product development resource, and then the payback takes quite a long time on the other side as well, because just getting the trust of the industry takes a long time. Then commercialising it takes even longer. And as I said, you really only start making money in these markets when you have a, a significant renewal book that you can work with uh, and existing customers, because going out and acquiring new customers in that space is is usually expensive as well. So, yes, in principle is the answer to your question, uh, but it's it's obviously nuanced and a lot more complicated than just saying, yes, we want to be a data publisher. And what would you say are the do's and don'ts of success in this area? It sounds like principally it's getting clo- as close to the customer as possible. It it absolutely is. And this, I mean, I've worked in B2B media all my life. Um, it used to be when I first started my career, the sector I worked in was the most grubby and unfashionable <laughs> in media and information. I had friends who would say, oh, you work in publishing when you were out in a bar and you'd go, yes, I work for a metals pricing business called Metal Bulletin that's a small business down in Surrey and publishes a weekly magazine and some data on pricing. And you'd see people's eyes glaze over. Um, 
actually, ironically, my, my career has come full circle. So it's now the fashionable place to work. Uh, but the lessons that you learn along the way about how you develop those are true whether you work in that sector or any B2B sector. So uh, stay close to your customers, understand their pain points, understand their challenges, their strategic aims, uh, work through the things that you can do that dramatically contribute to their success in their business. Uh, Wireframe, work with proper product developers, go through an iterative process of presenting those ideas back to them and saying, you told me this would be valuable. If I built this, would that be something you would pay for? How much would you pay for it? How much, how valuable would that be to you, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, uh, a focus on product development. There's a focus on user understanding. There's a focus on understanding the day in the life about what things are used for. Um, but there's a there's a whole load of whole load of elements that you've got to you've got to work on to to build a proper data and information business. Uh, and what would you say the the kind of more traditional B two B companies can learn from the, the the pure play data companies? Well. I mean, I've been in both. So when we bought Farmers Guardian, it was a very traditional B2B media company. Um, What we learned from that was that in order to grow what had, what was a great, but maybe slightly tired brand, we had to, um, we had to really spend some proper money and spend some proper time on research. So we went off and asked our farming audience, all of the questions about what would make their life better, how could we help them, um, what were the challenges, what kept them awake, et cetera, et cetera, and started to build those services. So we built a tool that helped you apply for grants and subsidies. We built a, a partnership with a legal firm that gave them free legal advice helplines. We built a data hub of market prices and data. We did a partnership with a, uh, an agricultural buying group where our subscribers and members could benefit from group discounts on their purchases. And we, we, we developed layers of deeper value for those customers from what had been probably one of the most traditional B2B uh, B2B sectors. So you can do it from there, but you need to go in with the mindset of my job is not to sell you a page of advertising or to sell you a, a copy of my magazine or a login to my website. My job is to help you do your job better. And if I take the, the confines of a traditional media mindset away from that, then then that's where power lies and you can really start getting into the things which have value. And looking at agri-briefing over the next 12 to 18 months, where will you be focusing your resources? So I think all, all companies sort of, you have to work out what you're good at and that evolves over time. I think we are good at providing pricing information, market data, consulting, uh, those type of forecasting services for our sectors. Um, we work in very sort of narrow and deep niches uh, of customer bases. So we have to get to understand them ever deeper. Um, But as we do that, we start to dominate those verticals. So our focus is on um, user engagement, user understanding, uh, on product, product development, on technology platforms, on using tools like AI tools to help us develop our market intelligence services, uh, building workflow tools, uh, opening up adjacent markets, um, etc. So we so we so we focus on all of those things. Separately, we then obviously have an M and A element to what we do. So um, we are private equity backed, which makes a difference to how we run the business. But mergers are acquisitions is a significant part of my the time I spent out in the market looking for new uh, verticals or new uh, niches to add to our portfolio. 
Uh, and then, as in all businesses, it's people and talent as well. So um, whether that be sales operations specialists, key account managers, uh, product developers, data and pricing analysts, whatever it is, those are the those are the areas that ultimately these are still very dependent on bright, good people to come in and um, and and learn far more about a market than I ever could. Uh, and what would you say are the main challenges you face? So talent, definitely. Um, talent in any particular field? I think uh, across the board, we are, my, my colleagues in the US often talk about the great resignation, which I know has had uh, a lot of publicity in the press. But post-pandemic, there is a big turnover of, uh, of people going on, especially in the US market, slightly lesser so in, in Europe. So we, we face pressure on all of those areas and we try and provide a great environment for market analysts, for good commercial people, for good technologists to come and work. Uh, and that's often more, more than just the salary and benefits. That's the environment that they can work in and the challenges and learning that they get. So talent is, is, a, is a challenge. Um, I think the other areas that we face uh, challenges are on just really moving fast enough uh, on some markets. So understanding how our customers are evolving, we would like to be slightly ahead of our customers uh, in terms of offering them services which they maybe didn't fully appreciate they needed, but when they use them, they see the value. So um, the agricultural sector has been very fragmented. Uh, it is affected by a wide variety of out external factors. Um, and maybe, again, we try and learn the lessons from other commodity sectors, what's happening in energy, what's happening in chemicals, what's happening in oil and gas, what's happening in metals, etc. Uh, and apply some of the lessons that maybe... I don't know, S&P, IHS, Fast Markets, Argus, people like that have done in their markets and apply those back to uh, slightly less developed agricultural markets. Um, and that, that is a challenge, is, is just getting that pace right of, uh, of development, where to invest and at what scale. Uh, and what's the ambition for agri-briefing? Where, where do you see yourself in five, ten years' time? Well, I mean... James, that's, that's slightly uh, sort of dependent on our ownership structure. So I mentioned we are private equity backed, um, which means for those not familiar with the private equity industry, we go on sort of three to five year sprints of value creation um, where uh, a group of investors managed through a private equity firm will say, we believe in the strategy and the value of agri-briefing and the platform that they have built. And we're going to put some money in and invest so that they can get to that next stage of development. So we've already been on three of those cycles from originally buying Farmers Guardian through to the development of our commodity pricing and market data business. Uh, and ultimately, my job is to make sure that three to five years from those investments, there are a queue of people who then say, I want to back your next stage, or I value this company more highly than the, the sum of the parts that have been put in over the last three or four years. So we do work in a slightly different cycle from either a listed company or a private company. There is that private equity dynamic. Having said that, the lesson that we learn is that we always run the business as though we're going to own it forever. Uh, we have long-term three to five year plans that we're working on, but also a vision for where we're trying to go. Um, and I think if you think about most industry sectors, there are usually one or two dominant information providers for those sectors. So a classic example would be in the financial space where Reuters and Bloomberg sort of duke it out for financial information uh, dominance within those uh, within those sectors. 
And the interesting thing when we look back on the sort of angry food vertical is I couldn't name you who those dominant information providers are. Um, and I think that's partly an accident of history because the industry was fragmented and geographically diverse. Um, but it's also uh, the nature that you would have someone who is a specialist in, say, I don't know, coffee markets or grain markets or protein markets. It was, it was lots and lots of small businesses. And so the vision for this business is to be one of or the dominant information and market data pricing business for the agri-food vertical. And that's, that's where we're going. We think we're already one of the largest pure play businesses in the sector. Uh, but there's a big price to go for, and that's, that's what, we're, what we're concentrating on. And are your operations, are your analysis, are your data sets, are they global or are they geographic um, specific? Yeah, so it varies from market to market. So uh, the animal nutrition pricing business, which happens to be based in France, has always been a global business, but is becoming even more so under our stewardship because we obviously have a bit more reach and a bit more commercial um, infrastructure to help it develop. Um, the Ernabari protein pricing business, uh, as I say, has been going for 160 years and has a, a waiting, a significant waiting towards the North American markets. Uh, but again, part of our development has been hiring analysts that are based out of Europe uh, and we still cover South America, Australasian and Asian markets in the way in which they interact with the US space. So there's lots of opportunities for geographical development. And then the strategy grains business that we bought in January in uh, just south of Paris uh, has its origins in the EU, uh, but is increasingly covering global markets. So I think the markets we serve are global. Uh, the information that we have and the customer base is uh, partially global, but that's the opportunity is to take some of those brands and develop them into new territories. Now, Rory, as you said, you, you've worked in B2B publishing since the early 90s. If you look at how B2B has evolved since then, um, what have been the main trends and milestones? So if you, you know, track it back from 1990. <laughs> You're dating me, James. <laughs> <laughs> um, Similar to me. <laughs> so, uh, as I said, I started my career at a very small um, metals pricing business, a privately owned company at the time in the depths of um, the depths of darkest Surrey. Uh, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I went in my backgrounds in marketing subscriptions uh, and digital development. And when I talk about digital development, there wasn't any. We didn't have computers on our desks. Um, we had a telex room that was receiving prices from around the world. We were delivering something called fast track via uh, news wires and um, uh, satellite information services, all sorts of things. So um, I am privileged in a way to have seen an analog era of B2B media and been probably at the key points in my career during that digitization journey. Um, you may know that for a while I ran a service, a startup business called The Media Briefing. So we charted uh, a lot of that digital development across media and how that was changing, how business models were changing. And I suppose the key trends that we've seen have been the dismantling, maybe, of some of those trade behemoths, uh, the sort of, I don't know, the informer Euromoneys, um, uh, UBMs of this world, who, which obviously still exist in some shape or form, but they used to get massive economies of scale in the sort of industrial era about having a, I don't know, a central print procurement team, a central circulation development team, a central marketing team, um, central advertising teams working across multiple sectors and answering the phone and taking the money. Um, and that definitely has changed. So some, I think, as I said earlier, people need to understand what they're good at. And so there has been a concentration around verticals rather than horizontal skills. The value of the, the corporate has maybe disappeared in some ways. 
I think there's, there has been a shift to focus on revenue streams. So further into user revenues and away from marketing services. That doesn't mean there aren't great marketing services businesses still, but obviously the dismantling of that business model by increasingly the tech platforms uh, has been a very significant change. Um, and I think there's a, a lot more sophistication in in the media, the B2B media markets, the successful ones are starting to develop new models, looking at things like membership and community. Uh, those type of models are interesting. Uh, and actually, having said that there was dismantling of those big players, there's actually been, I think, a, as well, a sort of concentration around some of the some of the markets I work in. So you see the IHS S&P merger coming through, you see the scale of some of those big data players within the sector that operate across multiple markets. That's coming back, but it's a, it's a very different beast from the, uh, from the large trade publishers that used to dominate in the past. And if you look ahead on, in the B2B sector over the next few years, what, what's the next big thing or what, are there any big changes on the horizon? So I think tech is obviously, it's affecting every industry. Um, and by tech, I mean uh, customers' expectations about how they interact with businesses. Um, the use of artificial intelligence tools, the uh, development of different delivery methods. I mean, I, I can see a world in which our uh, sort of price reporting business morphs into rather than just reporting on price, we're actually providing the trading platforms or, or, across which um, across which customers are buying and selling, uh, and all of the sort of analytics and exhaust data that comes out of that. Uh, I think, as I said, the the other model I think is very interesting is that sort of facilitation of peer to peer networks. Uh, within our sector because again roll back to when you and I first started in this industry we used to talk about our titles as being the bible of xyz market which was always a bit arrogant but actually it was probably reasonably true because if you wanted to learn more about metals trading or pricing or you wanted to learn more about being a lawyer or you wanted to get your next job in a uh, a rival firm, your your weekly trade mag was the way in which you did that. That was what you dived into, to hear about innovation, to find connections, to find new suppliers or to find your new job or whatever it was. Um, and I think that the community development around niche verticals is a significant move for B2B. Um, you see things like the models around, I don't know, procurement leaders, which which changed hands recently, uh, some of the development of some of those leadership models. I've uh, um, invested in a few sort of startup businesses, including Guild, which Ashley Friedland has developed, which provides those, those sort of platforms for peer-to-peer -peer communication around very narrow channels. Uh, and I think those will 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 generate significant value uh, as we go through and they might be some very significant new models around b2b media and for b2b companies um you know charting their their way ahead over the next few years where where do you think they should be focusing their resources so i think specialization is is obviously important uh, you know that good strategy is about as much about what you don't do as what you do do. So really understanding what you're good at and saying, that is my competitive advantage within this space. And it might be a marketing services revenue business, or it might be a peer-to-peer -peer networking business, or it might be an events business or whatever else, but understanding what you're really good at. And then when you think about that sector, um, then starting to say, well, where is this going? There, is an, there, are, there are some unbundling of some business models in this space, which creates challenges, but also creates a whole load of opportunities. So what has happened in the event space over the last 18 months, I am sure you will see a massive rise of loads of information, uh, innovation around hybrid, uh, in-person and digital communities that spring up. 
people who relied on a, uh, an exhibition model will be starting to look at, well, how do I benefit from that audience 365 days? What can I do in terms of smart matching and data? Uh, how can I introduce buyers and sellers in a more efficient way than just uh, two days of a trade show? So there, there will be a rise of lots of new models in that space. And I think the advice I would give to anyone in, in B2B media or most industries is just be a magpie. Go, up, go off and collect ideas. Be inquisitive and understand how some of those new business models are evolving. Network with the young up and coming um, enterprises, some of the people trying new models. And you never know, there might be something that you can apply back to your much more traditional uh, business and concentrate on. So the value of learning, uh, the value of knowledge and, uh, and just being inquisitive about how other people are developing, uh, I think is very important. And the commodity pricing and reporting sector, which you're, you're now a part of, how do you see that changing and growing and evolving? Well, I think our sector will become more sophisticated. Um, so we deal with some very, very big companies in our space. So if you think about, I think Cargill is, Cargill is one of the big agricultural trading houses. And I think it, it certainly was the largest privately owned business in the world. Um, and yet the level of sophistication that goes on in those companies um, is probably not on a par with some of the other commodity market sectors. So I think we can ride that wave of increasing sophistication. I mean, there's the old cliche that data is the new oil, um, which is a cliche, but it, but I mean, the, as in all of these things, there's, there's quite a big element of truth in it, that if you don't have the data sets that you can input, input into your model at one end, uh, you can't get efficient outputs at the other end or not as efficient outputs. So the more of these data sets that you can use, the more of the, uh, the information that your customers can use, the more sophisticated they can become. And therefore, our job is to create and really understand those data points which inform a business decision from our customers. So focus around that and we will be successful as a result. Uh, and finally, Rory, a question we ask all our guests on the podcast. Um, outside of work, um, how do you relax? <laughs> do you well, relax? <laughs> yes, I mean, obviously. There's, I mean, um, I joke that the last 18 months, um, uh, much as I like my own, own family, it's quite nice to spend time with people you're not genetically related to. So it's, <laughs> been, it's been good to get back out and out and about. We are starting to travel again. So it's part work, but it's uh, I'm, I mean, travel is hugely energizing, meeting different people, going to events, things like that. So that that is a work thing, but it's also uh, a, a revitalization. Um, I suppose uh, totally outside work, I have uh, probably three main things that I do. So I'm a, a football fan, um, used to play, uh, now uh, watch. I um, gamble, so I play a lot of uh, backgammon, poker, things like that. I like, I enjoy, uh, I enjoy gambling, gambling type games. Uh, well, is that then, gambling, gambling online or gam, gambling? <laughs> well, it's, it's gambling in person. So in person is great. So I, I used to love nothing more than sitting with friends and, and playing backgammon for an evening and uh, putting the world to rights and uh, doing some of those things. So that that was great, but. Um, and the final one is sort of music and reading. I mean, it's just a cliche, but those are those are great turnoffs, and you need to distract yourself away from a screen and away from the life that we all live of um, teams meetings and um, uh, and spreadsheets and budgeting and planning and things like that. And there's nothing better than some good music or a good book. Okay, Rory, two follow up questions: Which team do you support? <laughs> Now I'm, now I'm telling things. So uh, I am a Brentford season ticket holder, which during the pandemic has kept me um, kept me going, really. So Brentford are in the Premier League, for those who don't know, for the first time since uh, the Second World War. So that's a, a, an amazing novelty. 
Is following um, them a stressful experience or a relaxing well, experience? Well, so that it depends. I mean, uh, we always say working for a private equity business is all is all great and unstressful when you're delivering your numbers. Uh, I suppose the same parallels apply to your football team. If you're winning or performing well, then it's not stressful when you're sitting in the stands and uh, watching your team get taken apart, and that's slightly more stressful. So. And one last one, Rory. Uh, uh, you talk about reading and books and stuff. A- any good books you've read recently? Uh, what have I read recently? Uh, it's, I mean, it's trashy, trashy stuff. So I am not a management textbook guy. Uh, so I loved um, Bob Mortimer's autobiography that I read recently. I thought that was that was great and has just a, a very gentle pace to it. And I think that's uh, uh, in our sort of online busy lives. His fishing program and his autobiography I thought were great and made me giggle and made me think about the meaning of life and all of those things. So that was good. Rory Brown, thank you very much for being our guest on the In Publishing Podcast. No worries. Thank you, James. A final word from our valued podcast sponsor. Air Business is trusted by 4,000 publications and 3 million happy subscribers, with 10 million customer records on file. It processes £500 million each year in 22 currencies and delivers over 300 million items. Find out more at airbusiness.com. Many thanks to Rory for being our guest this time. I particularly liked his emphasis on investment, building trust and playing the long game. Success doesn't come easy. You can find out more about AgriBriefing at their website, agribriefing.com. You can also follow Rory on Twitter, where his handle is at Rory Brown. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then please email editorial at inpublishing.co.uk. Thank you for listening and do join me in two weeks' time for another podcast. Bye for now.